Our Father, we thank you that you're a speaking God, and we pray that we would find, as we look at this passage, that you speak to us very directly. We ask for the help of your Spirit to open our eyes and to work in our hearts, that we might see Jesus, and see what he has done for us, and respond rightly, personally, to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The man Barabbas had been in prison for a while already. He'd been tried and sentenced. He was a violent man. We're told in Mark that he was a murderer. He'd been involved in an anti-Roman insurrection. The word that Matthew uses in his account is notorious. Barabbas was notorious. The kind of man the other prisoners would have kept away from. But whatever was in his past, his future was now set he would be executed, crucified. It was only a matter of time. And so he waited. Until on this day, a guard comes in and says to him, Barabbas, you're up. The governor wants to see you. There's going to be some sort of a release. It's that tradition from the festival. When one prisoner is set free, you're up against some guy named Jesus. It'll be either you or him. And so Barabbas is led out to that judgment seat where Pilate sits with the lawyers and the other crowd and this other guy, Jesus, standing across from him. And Pilate shouts out for the crowd, who do you want me? Which one shall I release for you? I suppose Barabbas would have looked across at Jesus, thinking to himself, well, chum, it's either you or me. I don't know what he's done. He doesn't look notorious to me. He doesn't look like much. But who cares? It's either him or me. And Pilate asks a second time, which one do you want me to release to you? And the crowd yells back, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And that's it. He's free. Released. As Jesus Christ is led away. This true and very striking story has been written down by Matthew for us. We've been seeing over the last week or so, as we look at these events leading up to Easter, how the events of the cross explain and symbolise the meaning, the achievement of the cross. That's how Matthew teaches us. And the lesson here in the events, the lesson that all this shows us about the meaning of the cross, is that the cross is rescue through substitution rescue through substitution. From the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he has been telling a rescue story. It's like we we read at Christmas, as the angel says to Joseph and Mary, you shall name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people. That's what Matthew has been tracing through. And the cross is the climax of that. And last week, as Jesus prayed in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, we learned in more detail what he would save his people from. God's anger, the wrath of God, as Jesus prayed about the cup, that horrifying picture from the Old Testament. We learned what Jesus would save his people from. And now in this passage, we see how that rescue will happen. By substitution, That is the great meaning and achievement of the cross. That Jesus faced God's anger in our place. That he stood in for us. That he was sentenced so that we might go free. 
That's why this story matters for us as we look at it this morning. Because for each one of us, this is the rescue that we need. If God is angry with us for the way we act, for the way we treat him, if God is angry with us and will punish us, then what are we to do? We don't look like Barabbas here this morning. But in many ways, our position is his position. Guilty and condemned. But here is a story of release through the death of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is really what it's all about. As we come to Easter, this is the heart of the matter. This is the good news. This is why you need Jesus. Because when it comes to being judged by God, either you will face that sentence or he does in your place. It's either him or me. And if you are a Christian, this angle on the cross shows us how personal salvation is. Jesus died for you in your place. That's how a Christian needs to live their life. It's as Robin read from Paul at the beginning, trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes we struggle to feel that God loves us. Well, the idea of substitution will help us with that. Sometimes we feel that we struggle to love God. Again, the idea of substitution will help with that. We're going to look at the passage under three headings as Matthew explains the meaning of the cross. And first of all, we, have, we see the guilty man. Barabbas is the guilty man. He, he was justly imprisoned and sentenced. The word notorious. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what lies behind that, but it sounds serious, doesn't it? He's not in there for, un, for unpaid library fines. Um, this guy's bad news. He's a murderer. He's a rebel. Well, I guess naturally we, we don't identify with a man like that, many of us. But I think Matthew intends that we should identify with him. I think the way that the narrative is set up, he is every man. He's a representative person. Why would we say that? Well, first of all, Matthew is very sparing with the details about Barabbas. He's there in the story, but he, he's not really described. There's no biography. He doesn't say anything. He's more of a, a figure than an individual character. And his vagueness makes him easy for any of us, all of us, to identify with. And then there is the matter of his name. Of course, that wasn't Matthew's choice, but in the providence of God, Jesus came up against a man called Barabbas. Bar, it's like muk, means the son of. And Abba, father. It's a very generic name, son of the father. It's a name that could apply to anyone. And I think that is the point. Barabbas is the guilty man who stands in opposition. All of us. Because as shocking as it might be, that, that is the Bible's message. That we might not look like Barabbas, we don't look notorious. Most of us are clean and shaved this morning, we don't look like him. We don't have his reputation. And yet we do share his guilt and his condemnation. His guilt. That's hard to accept, isn't it? Hard to accept that we're as guilty as a man on trial for murder. Found guilty. Because we're so used to 
comparing ourselves on the horizontal plane. We look at a man like this and think, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. Because he's a murderer, after all. Isn't that the most serious of all crimes? Well, just a few chapters back in Matthew 22, Jesus has just said that the, most, uh, that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And if that is the first and greatest commandment, what then is the worst and greatest crime? Our horizontal morality means very little to God. Very little. Before him we are as guilty as sin, not so much for the way we've treated others, but for the way we've treated him. We have loved other things, other people, before him, ahead of him. We have hoped in other things before him. We have found our joy, our security in other things. We have been ungrateful. Sometimes we haven't done much. We've just ignored him. We are by nature rebels, no less than he. And as we share his guilt, we also share his condemnation. That judgment of God, his justice, hangs over all of us when we die or when Jesus returns. Again, that's hard to believe this morning. For many of us, our lives are so comfortable. Our cells are so comfortable. It would be easy to forget that that is what we face. Barabbas, he's there in the story. He's every man because every man and woman like him, is condemned and guilty. And the surrounding characters, in the way that Matthew tells this story, I think are meant to reinforce the point. That's one of the ways that Matthew has arranged this account, with Barabbas in the middle, but all the other characters around him also trapped in guilt and sin. Matthew has set it up so that the whole thing stinks. They are all the guilty men, as we are all. So first, there's Judas, We didn't read back to verses 1 to 10. We didn't read that, but that's where the section begins with Judas. Judas Iscariot, the big name in betrayal. This is the guy who sold out Jesus Christ, his intimate friend of three years for 30 pieces of silver. He sold him out. And here we see how much he regrets it. He goes back to the chief priests and he says, I've made a terrible mistake. I've sinned. I have betrayed an innocent man. But they don't care. And there's nothing he can do. And so, verse 5, he takes himself away and commits suicide. The only escape that he can see. And then there's Pilate, the politician. He is the judge, but he is not just. Because the trial that Matthew describes here, it's not really a trial at all. It's more of a negotiation. Because Pilate knows right from the beginning that Jesus is innocent. He knows that right from the start. That's why he comes up with this idea of a a release. He's hoping that Jesus will be able to get off with it. His wife warns him. Pilate knows from the very beginning. He strings things out so that he can find maybe some way out for Jesus. And yet in the end, power trumps truth. So verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And then he hands him over. Pilate crumbles under pressure. What was right 
for him was soon outweighed by what was expedient. And then there are the chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders here. All the way through Matthew's Gospel, these guys had been implacably opposed to Jesus because he exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed the way that though their lips, they praised the Lord with their lips, really their hearts were far from him. And we see the same hypocrisy here. It was to them that Judas had betrayed the Lord Jesus. And so to them, Judas goes and says, I've made a mistake, he's innocent. But they don't want to know. They don't care. They send him away. All they wanted was Jesus dead. And they had used Judas to achieve that. But then look at how scrupulous they are. If you look at verse 5, they will not take the blood money. As Judas throws it down, they will not take the blood money back into the temple because that would be an infraction of the compliance regulations. How very scrupulous are these murderers. And then, perhaps most frightening of all, in verse 25, as Pilate says, look, this guy's innocent, this is not my responsibility. The people, Matthew puts in that frightful word, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. It's Palm Sunday today. And it makes us think back in our minds to earlier on in the Passion narrative where Jesus enters Jerusalem and the crowds are cheering for him. And yet here, they shout with a different sentiment. They want him dead. Now, of course, there's quite an extreme situation that Matthew's describing. A man loses his life here, after all. This is not what we're used to from day to day. And yet, From another angle, this is exactly what we're used to. This is the world we live in. Because who of us, like Judas, has not betrayed the goodness and kindness of God and thrown it back in his face, only to bitterly regret it? And who of us, like Pilate, knowing what was right and what was wrong, have nonetheless caved into pressure and gone along with everybody else? And who of us, like the chief priests and the elders, have not knowingly talked a better game than we played and put forward a pious image that is not matched by the truth underneath. And who of us, like the crowd, have not been fickle towards God, blowing hot and then ice cold? This is the scene that Matthew describes for us. It it stinks of sin and guilt from start to finish. All is ugliness because he's showing us the mess that Jesus came to save us from. You are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so we move on from the guilty man to the innocent substitute. That's the next step in Matthew's logic. Jesus is the innocent substitute. Notice how that is proclaimed throughout the passage. Judas knows it in verse 4. Pilate knows it in verse 18. Pilate's wife knows it in verse 19. And even the crowds had had to be primed, persuaded in verse 20. Jesus is an innocent man, and yet he is silent. The accusations come at him, and he is silent after, in a perfunctory way, answering Pilate's initial question, he says no more. 
in this passage. Not a thing. The accusations are thrown at him. He doesn't fight his own corner. He doesn't defend itself, um, himself. It's very ironic as we read that, as the elders and the chief priests of Israel throw their accusations at him and he is silent. They fail to see that right before their eyes, all the patterns and all the predictions of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets, were being fulfilled. The patterns, first of all, all the way through the law of Israel, God had given sacrifices that there might be atonement and forgiveness. What were those sacrifices? Well, a number of things. But the basic sin offering, the burnt offering, was to be a perfect young male animal, a lamb or a kid. That was the sacrifice. It was to be whole and healthy and perfect. And here is Jesus, the innocent Jesus, fulfilling that pattern exactly. And also, the predictions, the prophecies Isaiah had written about the righteous servant who would save many through his silent suffering. He writes this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And here stands Jesus, silent, facing judgment on behalf of God's people. In the justice of God, it was vital that Jesus be an innocent substitute, that he have no sin of his own to pay for, so that he could pay for ours. As we think about this, it's got to stir up our admiration for Jesus. We're used to thinking about how he rescued us on the cross, but we need to see here how that was underpinned by 30 years of perfect life, of saying no to sin and to temptation. What would it be like never to have lied? What would it be like never to have lusted, always to have had the right priorities, always to have loved? What would it be like? We look at Jesus and we see the innocent substitute, the perfect Lamb of God. And we also see his self-control here. That's what struck me powerfully as I looked at this this week. If something is not my fault, I am not going to take the blame for it. It's not how it works, is it? I guess all of us are like that. If, if blame is being passed around, well, sometimes I am to blame, but if it's not me, then I'll pass the parcel. Jesus doesn't do that. He's losing his reputation here, but he is happy to give that up. He doesn't feel the need to fight his own corner. He doesn't answer the accusations. He was willing to lay down everything. It struck me this week how hard that must have been, because suffering is one thing, but to take the fall when it's not your fault, well, that is really hard. But that is what Jesus did for us. Although he was innocent, he was willing to lay down his life in this way. He's in complete control here. It's funny, he is not a victim in this scene. Of all the people here, he is not a victim. We could see Judas that way, or Pilate, but not Jesus. He is in control. It's as he says himself in John's Gospel, no one takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. The guilty man, the innocent substitute, and finally, the great exchange. Verse 26, look at that please. Verse 26 takes us right to the heart of the cross. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Think about the two men standing there, Jesus and Barabbas. It's a choice between the two men. For one of them, life and freedom. For the other, crucifixion and death. It's either one or the other. Jesus is taken, the innocent man, and Barabbas, the guilty man, is freed. That's the heart of the cross. It's how Christians have always understood the heart of the meaning of the cross. So, as Peter wrote later on in one of his letters, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Or as Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or as Jesus himself said earlier in Matthew, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Barabbas, guilty man, is freed because the innocent substitute is condemned. That is the great exchange. That is the heart of the gospel. Now, there's endless applications we could make from this, endless ways in which this should shape and change our hearts and lives. Let me pick out just two. Just two. First, this incident highlights how personal salvation is. How personal salvation is through Jesus Christ. Think about Barabbas. As he walks free and Jesus goes to execution, it would be very clear that it's a man for a man. The fate of those two individuals has been linked, hasn't it, in that transaction. If I'd been Barabbas, I suppose, having been free, I would have laid low, get out of town before the Romans changed their mind. But suppose he didn't. Suppose he stuck around. Suppose he joined the crowd and watched as those events unfold as Jesus is beaten and then put beneath a crossbar and then led out in public and then lifted up on the cross to die. It'll be a moving experience for anyone to watch in the crowd that day, but especially so for Barabbas. As he looks on and he knows that could so easily have been me, my fate, my cross. It was a man for a man. It's very personal. And that is what the cross means for us, for you, if you're a Christian. Think about Paul's words again from the beginning. The Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. All of my sin laid on him. All of my pride laid on him. All of my selfishness laid on him. All of God's anger against me laid on him. All of the pain and the forsakenness that I should face laid on him. There could be no truer friend than Jesus Christ, the one who willingly stood in for us to face the wrath of God. 
in all the ups and downs of life and all the fears and doubts that come through all those ups and downs, the cross is where we know that we are loved. And it's also at the cross that our love for God is kindled because it's so personal. If you are feeling unmoved as a Christian, not bothered about Jesus Christ, if you feel that you are slow to live for him and follow him, think about the cross where he took your place. It's very personal. Second application. This passage helps us to feel the value of the new life that we now enjoy. This helps us to feel the value of the new life that we now enjoy. Barabbas would have walked away a free man, but with a very strong awareness that the price of his freedom was the death of another man. His life had been unnaturally extended, surprisingly extended, by the execution of Jesus. We sometimes say that a person is living on borrowed time. Well, that's almost true of Barabbas, but it wasn't borrowed, it was substituted. It was given to him by the sacrifice of Jesus. It was new life, a bonus, if you like. And it all came from Christ. He was free because Jesus was not. He had months and weeks and years ahead of him to look forward to because Jesus did not. He could see people and talk to them because Jesus could not. He was alive because Jesus was not. It gives a special quality to that life that now lay before Barabbas, doesn't it? We don't know what he did with that. We don't know, with, we don't know what he made of that second chance that he'd been given, the reprieve. We don't know how he responded. But we can choose how we respond. There's something very special that you've been given at the cross if you're a Christian. A second chance. A new life. How will you use it? The right response is thankfulness and service and purity. As Paul would write later on to the Corinthians, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God. That's fair enough, isn't it? You were bought at a price, therefore honour this Jesus. Or as Peter wrote, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Many of you will have seen the film Saving Private Ryan. I think it's old enough for me to talk about and ruin the plot if you haven't seen it, so apologies. It's a film about John Miller, a US Army captain who is sent to France in World War II to bring home Private James Ryan. Ryan's brothers had all been killed and apparently it was US policy to send a man in that position home, back to his parents. And so Captain Miller is sent in, he has to find him, it's obviously not an easy job in war-torn France, he's got to get him back through all the dangers, all the fighting of counter-attacks and such like. And in the end, he succeeds, the mission is a success, he rescues Private Ryan, but in that he gives his own life. It's near the end of the film, as Captain Miller, having brought him through so much, has killed himself to give this other man his freedom. And right at the end of the film, there's a very moving scene as 
Private Ryan is an old man with his wife and his family. They go to France, him and his kids and his grandchildren, they go to France and they find the military cemetery where Captain Miller is buried. And you're supposed to think of all the long life that he has led up to that point since when you saw him as a young man, all that life that was given to him by the sacrifice of another. And he kneels by the grave of his friend, his rescuer, and he says, I hope, it's, I hope I've led a good life. I hope I've been a good man. I hope that what I have made, I hope I've made a lot of the opportunity that you gave me at such great cost. It's quite a sentimental scene in some ways. I'd be crying my eyes out. I'm terrible for that. But it does, it does rightly convey the weight of gratitude that one man rightly feels towards another. If someone died to give me life, then for his sake, I'd better use it well. And that's the message of that film, really, and of this passage. If someone died to give me life, I had better use it well. That is what the cross says to every Christian. The life, the time, the liberty we have was very dearly bought. And when we have a sense of that, that will change our behaviour in the coming week. Our responses in moments of temptation, the whole direction, the ambitions of our life. Something very special you've been given at the cross if you're a Christian, a second chance, a new life, how will you use it? That's what this passage says to us. The guilty man, the innocent substitute, the great exchange. Let's pray. Our Father, what can we say in response to what we see that you have given for us? Lord, help us to see, help us to feel the love that Jesus has for us as he gave himself for us. And Lord, please, with that love, that substitution, steady us and warm our hearts and motivate us. Lord, please, would we love the Lord Jesus as we see he loved us. In his name. Amen. Amen.